Hey, what's up? It's DeHuff. It's another episode of DeHuff Uncensored. Thank you guys so much for popping on. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Also, I'm on YouTube, so go to YouTube and search DeHuff Uncensored and then hit that subscribe button. Today's episode, we're talking about being lost at sea. This is a complete nightmare for me and why I refuse to go on a cruise ship because I'm afraid something like this is going to happen. And I don't know what to do because I I told you guys that story about when I capsized in Australia in shark-infested waters, and that was only for like 15 minutes. And it was complete hell, and I still have random little flashbacks of that. And I can only imagine being lost at sea for 76 days. That's the story of Steve Callahan. Steve Callahan is a very smart guy. He holds a university degree in philosophy. He's a naval architect. He also has designed and built boats, taught design as well, lived aboard, raced, and cruised boats of all kinds. This guy is born for the water. He knows everything there is about water, it seems. So if this is going to happen to anybody and you're there too, you want him with you. You want this guy with you. Now, on January 29th, 1982, Steve is by himself. He's taking a trip from the Canary Islands, and he's headed towards Antigua. And I think I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm probably not. And he was on his boat named the Napoleon Solo. So he's seven days into the trip. He's on his 21-foot boat. I don't think it's a yacht, but it we're going to call it a boat. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's a storm. And all of a sudden, it gets bumped by something. He either hit something or something hit him. And it badly damages the boat. He later comes on and says that uh, he, he thinks it may have been a whale that damaged it. But either way, doesn't matter. Because all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's a storm. And then his boat starts to sink. They're taking on tons of water. He can't stay there. Duh. Can't stay there. So thankfully, he had a an inflatable six-foot raft. And before it was too late, he managed to get back on board the Napoleon Solo and was able to uh, retrieve some items. So I'm going to play you some audio from Steve as he details a lot of what happened on this just insane, mind-blowing journey. And it starts with him not being afraid to go back on the sinking Napoleon Solo. Once I got into the life raft, I didn't want to leave Napoleon Solo until I absolutely had to because that boat contained food, water, (laughs) all kinds of things. He did the smart thing. He realized, okay, this is a very chaotic moment. I realize there's a lot of stuff on that boat that's going to allow me to survive. And if I drag my feet too long... That's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean, and it does me no good down there. So he's able to grab a piece of cushion, a sleeping bag. That's a huge thing to get. An emergency kit, food, navigation charts, a short spear gun, which he had just purchased, kind of just like as as a cute little gun. I'll go grab that. Maybe I'll do some fishing once I get to where I'm going. Also had flares, torches, solar stills for producing drinking water, because you can't drink seawater. So he was smart, and he was able to get that. Eight one-pint cans of fresh water, cans of peanuts, a bag of dry beans, and a box of raisins. He 
was set. And part of the reason why he was able to go back into the sinking boat was he built these airtight, watertight cabinets or, you know, uh, compartments. So it wanted to sink, but it couldn't because he built those so well. That gave me a chance to get back on board and dive down and get some really critical equipment, especially this emergency bag that I had. You heard what he just said there, too. So it's the middle. It's not like he's just hopping on the boat. He had to go dive down in some instances and go into the water in the middle of the night where something just bumped him and destroyed his boat and go in there and try to salvage what he could. The the amount of craziness that's already in this story right now is just mind-blowing to me. But he had to do it. He got kicked into survival mode, whether he wanted it or not. So now he gets his stuff, but now he's on this, this flimsy little raft. And these big waves that would come by would hit the raft and just like smashes like being in an auto accident every few minutes. It would just like completely collapse the raft and I'd get pinched in there and water would come flying in everywhere. And I was really worried that the raft was going to tear itself to bits. Think about what a raft is made out of. It's so thin. Now, I know they're strong, but... I mean, you're you. If you've ever been to an ocean and been hit by a really powerful wave, that I can only imagine what's going through your mind at, in the middle of the ocean, middle of the night, and you're dealing with all, all this, and then all of a sudden you get start getting pounded by the waves in this flimsy little raft. You got to be thinking that you're about to die, and you got to do a quick, uh, you know, evaluation of yourself and be like, okay, I'm not going to die. I'm going to do everything and anything I can to survive. And part of that was making a list and going through it and, and making sure that you're good to go. The first thing I did was tie everything into the raft. With the raft being vulnerable, you know, you lose a bit of equipment, that's it, you're done. Exactly. So if you if you do all this, you make this effort to go get the spear gun and do and grab all this other stuff, the medical uh, kit, and then all of a sudden you just don't secure it. Next thing you know, you get hit by a wave. And that shit's at the bottom of the ocean. Again, you're screwed. So you got it. It's just a good example of when we're put into a situation of of chaos, taking a second, go, okay, take a breath. What do I need to do right now? I need to make sure I don't lose all this stuff that I just got. So he's now on the raft. It's beginning to drift westward. Now he has to grasp the idea that he's living on a raft and he has no idea if he's ever going to be rescued. I started to adapt the attitude that this is not the end of a voyage, it's a continuation. It's just in a little bit more humble craft. So develop a shipboard routine, keep a log, exercise, navigate, normalize life as much as possible in order to get through this period of disorientation and fear into a period of adaptation or the survival routine. The other thing that I, I think is interesting is when you're on or in a situation like this, like Stephen was, is you're, and I've never been in a situation like this where you have to ration. So he has this food supply that he got from from the Napoleon Solo, but it's not like it's a lot. So you really have to pace yourself. And that would be hard, especially the, like the first, I would say like a day and a half of you being just super hungry and, and just making sure you don't overeat. Because like you would really have to eat like a couple peanuts and then you got to call it good. 
Otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna eat your your supply. So you really are stripping things down to its basic form on on eating and and and, and everything else. Almost all survival experiences are somehow trying to figure out how to solve problems in an isolated environment with limited resources. And in a life raft, the resources are pretty limited. So you get right down to basics of living and what you really need. He mainly ate, once his, once his food supply uh, was just done with, he had to start fishing. And thankfully, he had that spear gun. By the way, one fish would last him about three to four days. So that's pretty good. He ate mahi-mahi, trigger fish, flying fish, barnacles. He even ate a bird at one point. I mean, honestly, you got to, there's no room for picky eaters in this situation. You can't be picky. You eat whatever you can fucking eat. If all of a sudden a seagull comes and sits next to you, you fucking cut its head off and you eat it. <laughs> it sounds disgusting, but you got to do what you got to do. And that's what, what he was living. So he's, he's, on his raft and what's interesting is as he's on the raft his raft starts creating a ecosystem there's like fish that are slowly uh, circling around him there's barnacles starting to attach themselves to to his raft and all this stuff and those are things that oddly enough are going to help save his life because he can start eating them and, and whatnot so it's really interesting as as crazy as that is that in a weird way, nature was was helping him along. He was able to collect drinking water from two solar stills that he had. And those pre-canned water only lasted a, a little bit. So he was able to produce right around just over a pint of water using that seawater still. He was able to do about a pint of water per day in order to survive and try to stay hydrated. Now, a lot of people are were asking... He tried to use that emergency position indicating radio beacon. He also used flares. But here's what's what's sad is back then, this is 1982, they didn't use satellites to try to track these beacons. They had to use aircraft. And an aircraft had to be within right around 250 miles in order to hear that beacon. And it just was like, eh. They ju it just didn't work. And by the time the batteries, you know, you're you're at the mercy of the batteries as well in, in that beacon. So he had no luck with that. There was a point in time where there was a ship so close to him, he could smell the diesel from the ship. He shot up a flare, but nobody noticed. In fact, he says that he saw right around nine ships and not one of them saw him. So he's just drifting out to sea, and nobody's there. And the times that, that he sees somebody, they don't notice him. And, and imagine the emotions that go through your mind of, of like, oh, my God, I'm saved. And then they don't see you. They don't see you. What's amazing, though, is this guy is brilliant and. Here's another reason why this guy's smarter than me. The line that I had out the back was basically a 70-foot piece of line, so I made up a little speed distance table, like a little speedometer, and I could time seaweed or something floating by. Yeah, he's a lot smarter than me. He also made 
a sextant, which is a measuring instrument for measuring the angle, the angular distance between celestial objects. Yeah, I had to I had to Google that. You're welcome. And he made that out of pencils and he was able to get a rough idea of where he was on the globe. Crazy. He did the math. Kids, learn your math, okay? And by his calculations, he would hit the Caribbean islands in two months. Could you imagine you're doing all this work and you're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to figure this shit out. And then you get the answer and you're like, fuck, two months. Damn it. Oh, that would be such a just a complete downer. So he's trying to keep his morale up and he's obviously got to keep food in his stomach. So he has to fish. I hit one, but not strong enough so that it would go through the fish. And within about 24 hours, they knew exactly what the range of my spear gun was. And they'd be like swimming just outside that range. And finally, he catches a fish. When I caught the first fish, all of a sudden, the other fish that were there went into this kind of frenzy. And they kept smacking the bottom of the raft, just smack, 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 smack. Wouldn't get, let me have any rest or anything. And I felt like I was caught in this Alfred Hitchcock birds kind of thing. It was the, I'm in the fish, and the fish are eventually going to destroy the raft and eat me. And that went on for quite a while. It's good that he caught fish, but that is wild that they they reacted that way. And they're probably like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, he stole Carl and then he's eating him. <laughs> like, he's a fucking psychopath. I can't imagine fishing out there because you're catching these fish. And like I said, he has that little ecosystem going on. And what's that going to attract? Well, it's going to attract sharks eventually. I was kind of asleep, and all of a sudden, on the bottom of the raft was flat, 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 and it was a Dorado. And then, boom, the whole raft was like thrown off the surface of the water, and it was a shark going after the Dorado that was under the raft. I was, of course, heart in the mouth and the whole bit, and I grabbed the spear gun, and I kept jabbing at it, and I finally got a couple of good hits on it, and it went away. Thank God he had that spear gun. I mean, he would he would be dead by now, if because you got to use it to fish, and now you're you're fighting off sharks with it. Are you kidding me, man? I don't know how this guy slept that night. I do not know. I, I I'm guessing he just couldn't help but sleep because he's exhausted. But he had to create these routines for himself so he wouldn't go nuts. So he's trying to make himself organized and doing a routine of okay, just woke up gotta you know do some fishing or whatnot so he would always make sure that he did the same thing so that way he felt like he had something to do and he wasn't just sitting there you know crying himself to sleep every single day so on day 43 he speared a dorado so that's one of those fish that that's been circling his his area so he spears the dorado but the the fish got free and then it's smacking around and it smacked the spear into the raft and it ripped a four inch hole just below the water line. So what does he do? With the bottom tube deflated, the water pressure would push up in the inside so that it was like this dome on the inside of rubber. And if I step in it, it's like being rubber quicksand, which I was worried about my legs sticking down in the water and sharks and stuff grabbing that made it really hard to tend to the solar still almost impossible to fish and it also gave me only about this much freeboard so any 
even minor waves were washing in and out of the raft. I was wet all the time, and it was it was miserable. I can't imagine that because it, that's just totally devastating. He's lucky it didn't cause more damage, but that's the problem. Though is you hear him explaining it is it's just it goes from a quote unquote manageable situation to he's essentially doing nothing. He can't do anything now. So he's just a sitting duck waiting to, you know, be rescued. Whereas before he was surviving and waiting to be rescued. Now it's just like, he's just waiting to die essentially. So he's like really depressed. And then after about, I don't know, several days on this faulty raft, he, he just shoots up and realizes I know how to fix this. If I don't get my act together here now, this one time, I wasn't just talking about the remote possibility now that this this is a matter of hours away. I'm going to be dead. That's all there is to it. And then it dawned on me, ah, I know what I need to do. As often as the case, in order to fix a problem, you often have to make them worse. I can use those as pins. I broke the handle off of a, a fork, and then I cut slits in the top and the bottom of the lips. And I put the foam tongue in, and I drove that pin down through the whole thing. And then behind it, I could wind lashings and make them really tight. And then it didn't matter how much pressure was in the raft. The line and everything couldn't be forced off because it was being held by that, by that pin. Brilliant. Brilliant. Again, much smarter than me because I couldn't even think about that but he was able to fix the problem and it's crazy to think that it took him several days to to figure it out but you gotta realize he's 43 days into this this survival situation and yeah maybe if it was day one and this happened he would have been able to figure it out from the get-go but man he's he's dehydrated malnutrition I'm sure he kind of kicks himself for that, but there's, dude, no, <laughs> you're okay on that one because you get a pass on that one, buddy. That, that, would, that would drive me nuts, but it's one of those things where good for him for finally figuring it out. So he describes what happens to your body when you're out in sea like this. And some of it, like, I guess I never even realized. I got pretty skinny and it was very interesting to me to see what happened to my body because all the fat goes first and all those bits of your body that you're not using a lot. So, you know, the rear end's gone. Don't need that. Legs got really, really skinny, even though I could stand up on the raft and tried to, you know, like holding on to it. And it was kind of like a bit like walking on water, <laughs> but I, I got pretty good at it after a while. And my legs were strong enough to keep me up, but they were pretty thready by the end of it, you know, sort of knobby knees. My upper body, which I used the most, my body reserved the most strength for. So it, it remained in fairly decent shape compared to the rest of me. You also get salt water sores, and those are like pimples that end up all over your skin. He had about a hundred hundreds of them is what he said. And they all hurt horribly. And basically it's a pimple that ends up opening up. It's just an open sore on your body. And he had them everywhere. And usually what happens is you get those, like whatever you're laying on, like his butt, he would get, he had a lot of them on there. And like, like I said, they are horribly painful. So those were additional things that he had to deal with, but he was, surviving now the interesting thing is and another thing that i guess i just never thought of until he brings it up is yeah he's eating a lot of fish 
but he his body is missing a lot of other sources of nutrients. So that starts to click in and his body and his mind start working together and going, we need to find some other sources of nutrition. As time went on, I became much more interested in what was inside the fish than the flesh. The fish eyes, which were nuggets of fluid uh, between the vertebrae, all those little discs, they were kind of fluid-like. Fresh fish liver, heart, all those things inside the fish, which were providing me with vitamins and minerals and fats. You cannot be a picky eater if you're in survival mode. And I'm looking at my wife on this one and my daughter. And I know they would, my wife definitely would survive. She would just be like, okay, fuck it. I'll, I'll eat eyeballs. I don't care. I know she would do it. It would suck the very first time you do it. But th this guy's like, at this point, he's like 50 days in. I mean, there could be just about anything in front of me and I would probably eat it. I mean, yeah, yeah I would eat it. If, if I felt that it had nutritional value to me. So what's, what's also crazy is like he, at this point too, because his body is, is missing the fruits and the vegetables and the breads and stuff, he starts having weird dreams. It was always that nagging of being hungry, always. I found it very interesting that every time I slept that I would dream of foods and drinks, but I never dreamt of steak or fish. It was always beautiful breads and fruit and all the stuff that my body needed. Yeah, I, I think I'd be, hell, I still dream about food. <laughs> like, oh, oh, McDonald's, I love you. Oh, man. What would be the first thing you'd want to eat, though, after this? You'd want to eat something just kind of fatty, wouldn't you think? I would want like a McDonald's double cheeseburger or something like that. Double quarter pounder of cheese. Yes, thank you. Oh, man. So he he did it. He was able to, to stomach eating all these nasty things that, you know, outside looking in, you'd be like, oh, that's disgusting. But he's in survival mode. And he had to do what he had to do. And I would hope that I would do the same thing. So he's on this journey. And finally, finally, he's drifted right around 2,000 miles. And then this happens. On the 75th night, I got up and I looked out. And there were kind of like these little glows on the horizon. And there were several of them. I was really getting more and more jazzed up. Like, hmm, this is something there's that... They might not be boats. They might actually be something on land. And then finally, I saw the what was the loom of a lighthouse definitively because there was a pulse and a, a pause and a pulse, pulse, and it repeated over and over and over again. So the next morning, I expected to kind of get up and maybe see something way off in the distance. But actually, it was pretty close. I could see details on the land. I could see that there was an island right in front of me, and then I heard an engine. And it's getting closer and closer and closer. And I look out and I see these fishermen coming out to me. And they come up to the boat and they're talking some kind of language. I don't know what it is. I, I can, really can't figure it out. It's not really Spanish. It's not French. What is it? Well, it turns out it's Creole. And I'm not understanding a word of it. We load the raft up on the bow of the boat and roar into the island. So he ends up 2,000 miles away in an area just south of Guadalupe, and he's saved. He's finally rescued. And he's just, imagine yourself 
you you finally get rescued and as you put your feet on the ground first of all you able to stand it would be insane to try to take those first steps but i imagine as you as you put your f- feet in the sand you would just fall to the ground and just just it's a cliche moment but you would why wouldn't you not kiss the ground my god they eventually took him to the hospital treated him obviously for dehydration and uh, according to the 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 thing that I watched is uh, he spent a few days in the hospital while they, they got him back to what he needed to be, and he called his parents and told them that he was okay. If you ever want to read more about Stephen Callahan, I mean, he wrote a book called Adrift, and I'm very curious to, to you know, maybe I might end up picking that book up because I think it's fascinating, and I think there's a lot of little details that... Maybe I missed in in this story, but just really for a moment, think about if you were in that situation, how would you react? And I think what we can learn from this is at the very beginning, when this all first happened, he took a moment and realized, I need to act swiftly and smartly. The fact that he was able to go and retrieve critical items for survival is just brilliant. The fact that he was able to do that just saved his life. Because if he just sits there and gets on the raft and be like, ah, well, I'm done, then realizing, oh, shit, there's all this, this, and this, and this. I mean, he loaded his raft up as, with as much as he could. So thankfully, he was he did that. He thankfully was knowledgeable in regards to realizing where he was and knew how to figure out where he was. He knew how to fish. Just he did everything right. And listen, let's be honest. Who knows if he was out there another 10 days, would he still be able to tell the story? Who knows? Because all it takes is hitting a really bad storm and the, the dude's dead. Or he gets bumped by something else, capsize, and then a shark eats him or some shit like that. It's just wild to think about. And when you listen to his voice telling these stories, it's just like, wow, man, this guy, this guy is, he's at least looking back on it with a smile on his face. But I imagine it still haunts him to this day in some capacity. But I'm sure he learned a lot. Some of the gifts that I feel like I was given from the voyage, I found that I was a lot stronger and more adaptable than I thought I was, which is certainly important. But actually, the equal gift was being confronted by all my failures and shortcomings. I think that was a real gift. It gave me a chance to come back and try to make things a little better. It's just an amazing story and something that I don't truly know if I would have reacted the same way. By the way, all this audio that I'm using comes from the Wonder Channel, and they did a good job piecing that together. What I did was I just went through it and kind of picked out all the the comments made by him. And I just think it's a wonderful story. You should go check out his book, Adrift. And again, his name's Stephen Callahan. And 76 Days Lost at Sea. Mind-blowing. Like I said, when I capsized in Australia, I want to say it was roughly 15 minutes that I was stuck in the water. 
because I just couldn't get back in because of my loose life vest. My wife loosened it because <laughs> I looked like an exploding sausage casing. Anyway, that was terror for me. It was. And as I sat there and looked into the dark water where I could, it was so dark, I couldn't even see my hand that was in the water. And I sit there and go, that that just scares the shit out of me because I don't know what's down there. And I still like just, you know, right now as I say this, it just freaks me out. This guy was lost at sea for 76 fucking days. 76 days. And he survived. Man, that doesn't tell you to never give up. And I'm sure there was plenty of days where he was just like, fuck it, man, I'm going to die. But then something deep inside him told him, no, you're not stopping. Damn, man, this is just just an insane story. Again, it, again, what you can learn from this is to always take a step back from situations, no matter how crazy and chaotic they may seem. And you may actually get a moment of clarity to help you achieve success in that moment. And he did. And he did because he handled it right from the get-go. And the whole craziness of accidentally uh, slashing his raft on, what, day 43? I mean, come on. What a, what a crazy moment. And thankfully, within a f- couple days, he was able to have clarity and, and was able to fix it. So there you go. Never give up. Never give up. What a crazy survival story. If you have a good survival story you want to pass my way or just a crazy story in general, please let me know. DeHuff on Censored at gmail.com. Maybe you're part of the story. Maybe you want to pop on and fill me in. That's great, too. Let me know. Uh, Real quick, everybody knows Total Beverage in Westminster and Thornton. They're amazing, and everybody knows Total Beverage has an incredible selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Did you know they deliver? They do, and they also do curbside pickup, and they also do online wine education classes. So stop on by 104th and Thornton or on Sheridan in Westminster and see for yourself Or you can always find weekly deals, events, or even drink recipes online at TotalBev.com. Again, TotalBev.com. Total Beverage, everything you need and more. This is Chris Fusley, owner of the Blake Street Tavern. Okay, I admit it. Before the Minna McKinnon moved to town, I didn't know a hockey puck from a hamburger. You've never had my wife's cooking, eh? Now? Now I know the plus minus of everybody on the team. And I've checked out all their girlfriends on the internet. Shh. What's that? Shh. Okay? Uh, TMI? Snay on the whole intro-web thingy. But you get the point. We love hockey at the Blake Street Tavern. Stop by the corner of Park and Blake and watch the Minna Mac with game sound throughout our 18,000 square feet. It's the Blake Street Tavern, where Denver watches sports. All right, there you go. That's the Huff Uncensored. And a, a crazy story. Again, if you want to read the story, uh, the the book by Steve Callahan, just uh, look for Adrift. Adrift. I'm sure that's everywhere in, that you can find a book. <laughs> Wherever those places are that hold books, I'm sure you can find one. I don't know what they're called. Me no read. Anyway, it's to Huff Uncensored. Again, if you have a story you want to share with me, please do so. Uh, and maybe it's your story, maybe it's a, f- a friend of the family story, or it's just something crazy that you heard, let me know, Uncensored at gmail.com. It's Uncensored. Thanks so much to Blake Street Tavern. Thank you so much to Total Beverage. It's Uncensored. Let's keep moving forward. I'll talk to you next time.